You know, I mentioned this morning in passing this great biography by, by Arnold Dallimore about George Whitfield and encouraged you to, uh, to read it. Um, I was actually reading the first volume uh, 37 years ago when Vicki and I first married. And uh, we had to wait some time for the second volume, but I've read it and reread it over the years, portions of it, and sometimes, um, sometimes as now, reading back through it in the full. And I think you would benefit greatly. The times um, of that great 18th century revival so parallel the times that we now face. And uh, one of the things I think that can encourage our congregation and also grow us in grace and in unity is reading about some of these great Reformed Fathers, and I encourage you to consider it. Now we come to Ephesians, the fifth chapter. (coughs) Pardon me. (coughs) Ephesians chapter 5. And we're focused upon verses 21 through 33. But let's begin reading at chapter 5, verse 15, just so that we pick up some of the context. Let us briefly pray. Our Father, use this brief exposition of your word in our hearts and lives to grow us in grace, to strengthen our homes and our marriages, and to strengthen for each person here, whether married or not, relationship with Jesus, this wonderful communion that we have with our covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, who so loved us that he died upon a cross. We ask and pray that the risen Lord, now ascended on high, will intercede and make this sermon powerful to the lives of your people and to this church. Grow this Sunday evening service, we pray, so that it parallels the morning and that we will see, Heavenly Father, an eagerness on the part of your people to be in all the services of worship and to serve you by honoring your name. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians chapter 5, let's begin reading at verse 15. This is the word of God. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, 
because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, you'll notice that this sermon tonight has a title, Christian Marriage, Remembering the Basics. And the operative words are, first of all, that we are talking about Christian marriage. There are some who are married to unbelievers, a believer to an unbeliever. There are all sorts of issues that we might bring up there, but that's not our focus tonight, though there may be many things that you can take into that setting. Uh, the second operative word is that we are remembering. We, we, we all will know what I'm going to say tonight. We forget. Uh, we don't remember them sometimes at the crucial moments. It's really important if you go through Scripture to see how often the Lord Jesus Christ, how often our covenant God says we are to remember. We are to remember His covenant love, His covenant faithfulness. Uh, he has instituted the Supper of the Lord in part so that we will remember His death because we forget the most important thing of all and how it applies to life. If we forget that, then certainly we need to be reminded about these sorts of things also. So, Christian and remembering, but also the basics. We're not going to talk about some of the extraneous issues, important though they may be. We're talking about the ABCs because we all need to come back to the ABCs. We all need to remember the basics. Every one of us needs to remember the basics of the Christian life and the basics of marriage. Everyone can benefit from this exposition tonight, whether married or not, because it's all about Christ and his redeeming love. You notice that as we read the text. It's all about Jesus. And especially, I hope, that young people who will marry but are not yet married will tuck away the truths that you hear this evening way down deep in your heart, meditate upon them, and make use of them when the time comes for you to marry. Let me also say that culture may not determine these things, but the Bible alone determines these things. We live in a day when people all around us do not know what to believe, and that includes about marriage, about what a man is, what a woman is, what the role of the man-woman is in marriage or even in the church. There's terrible confusion and the church is in large measure influenced by that. Uh, recently, I saw um, the report of a gathering of a large body of people who are concerned about the PCUSA. And they came together and they affirmed certain things. And one of the things they affirmed is egalitarianism in relation to the church. That is to say that women should be ordained to office as well as men. Well, they're off to a very bad start in their concern about their denomination because this is one of the things that led their denomination into the problems that they now face. I don't want that for us. I'm not pointing the finger and saying, look at them. I am saying it for our benefit. The issue there is the authority of the Word of God, the authority of Scripture. Culture may not determine these things about headship in the church, headship in the home. This is something we must come to the Bible to determine. And so put the Bible in your hand and ask, what does the Bible teach? What do the scriptures demand? What do the scriptures call upon me to do? How do the scriptures call upon me to act in my home, in my marriage, and in all of life? Now, in this passage, 
the Apostle Paul gives three basic instructions. Here are your ABCs. Three basic instructions. The first is instruction regarding mutual submission one to another, and we find it there in verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now that comes before his discussion of headship in the home and the place of the man, the woman, in marriage, mutual submission. What does he mean by that? Well, he's talking to the church there, but it's applicable to marriages, it's applicable to the home, it's applicable to the father-son relationship and the mother-daughter relationship. There should be a willingness to listen, that we should be humble toward one another, that we should be slow to anger, that we should show honor one to another in all of our relationships in life, including marriage. And so even within marriage, there should be an attitude of mutual love and care despite age, intelligence, expertise, or position. For example, a teacher should have the humility to learn from his or her student. If he's a good teacher, he will learn how to listen to his students and garner data, direction, and wisdom from his students without in any way sacrificing the fact that he is the teacher or she is the teacher. Well, that's what we're being taught here in this passage. For example, in Philippians chapter 2, we read, and I want you to turn there because, again, it's just one of those basic passages, what our attitude should be one to another. Now, in Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That should be the attitude that we have one to another in the church, in the workplace, in the home, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this does not at all deny authority, hierarchy, and order in marriage when we say that we mutually submit one to another. A husband who is the head of his wife should be concerned about what she thinks. He should be eager to glean her wisdom about things. He should be eager that she use her gifts. Let me tell you, in my home, Vicki is the numbers person, and I would be foolish indeed if I did not listen to her. I want her wisdom, I want her input. And I want, in many instances, her guidance. I want her thoughts. Yes, I'm the head. Yes, uh, we make decisions in such a way that my headship has never been questioned. But nonetheless, I would be a foolish man indeed if I did not make use of her gifts. And I specifically mention that one because it is a very prominent gift that the Lord has given to her. There are others. For example, she's a very wise judge of character. And if you don't think that's a help to a minister, it really is. So mutual submission, one to another. 
Now, that's the first of the ABCs. The next basic instruction that the apostle gives us is that wives are to submit to your husbands. Wives, submit to your husbands. Again, let's read beginning in verse 22 through verse 24. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, first of all, let me say that this does not imply inferiority. In many instances, wives have greater gifts, greater abilities than their husbands. It does not imply inferiority of sex. There is no inferiority that is implied here in any way. It does not imply submission to all men. I've known certain settings in which verses like this are presented as if women are, Christian women are to submit to all other Christian men or all men, and that simply is not the case. Now, certainly there has to be wisdom on the part of a mother to train a young woman how to, how to learn that proper attitude that will help her to learn to be a submissive wife, how to learn how to allow a man in a proper setting to take the lead. That primarily happens, or should primarily happen in most instances, with the father. But it does not imply submission to all men. It does. This command of wives submitting to your husbands does recognize that God has established an order in the home. He did this. It's not for you or me to say why. It's not for you or me to set aside his word. It's not for you or for me to say, well, our culture doesn't see it that way anymore, and so we're not going to do it. No, it does say to us that God has established an order in the home, and he has established also an order in the church, so that he has told us very specifically in Scripture that men who are called and qualified and gifted to office should be ordained, but not women. It also does stem from a deeper motive. This command that wives are to submit to their husbands stems from a deeper motive. Submission to your husband stems from the deeper motive of submission to your Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ is eternally God. Consider this. Christ is eternally God and yet willingly subordinated himself to the Father to come and bleed and die for us sinners. If the Son of God, equal with the Father, is willing to submit himself to the Father in this great arrangement called the covenant of redemption to save us from our sins, then surely we can also learn how to be submissive in the places in which God has taught us to be. But notice in verse 22... Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, as to the Lord. And in verse 33, we are told, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, most of the translations have that, but I think it's a weak translation. It says respect her husband, but it's the very same word that is used in verse 21, a different form, but the same same lexical stock in verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In verse 21, they translate it reverence. In verse 33, they translate it respect. The word really is fear. You are to live in fear. That is to say, just as you have a godly fear... 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, an appropriate fear of God. So you should learn, learn to live with that sort of reverence and submission to your husband because ultimately your submission is unto the Lord. That's what the text is teaching to women, and that's what it means. Again, it does not mean that we should absolutize the word everything in verse 24. Look at it. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything and everything to their husbands. Now, remember the context here is a godly man, a godly woman, a Christian home, a Christian marriage, both submitting to the Word of God. Keep that in mind. It doesn't say that you are to submit in everything absolutized. For example, years ago, there was a certain, a certain conference that was going around in which a gentleman actually taught that if your husband, teaching the wives, if your husband says, when he comes home, uh, go and get the knife, I'm going to kill the baby. Uh, this gentleman actually taught that's exactly what you're supposed to do on the basis of this text, that wives are to submit to their husbands and everything. Well, that's absolutely foolish. Uh, that's poor hermeneutics at best. Uh, it's foolishness. Uh, God doesn't call upon you to break the Ten Commandments in obedience to your husband. That's not what the text means. Paul is talking about a situation in which a husband loves his wife, leads his wife. Together they submit to the Word of God. And in that context, you are to submit to your husband in everything. Now, don't use that as an excuse for looking for things for which not to submit. Now, there are going to be hard things sometimes that you will submit as a wife. You would rather not do it. But you ought to have... With your husband, you should have such a relationship that when you're in doubt, you can sit down and say, I have my doubts and here's why. You can say, let's look at the Bible together. You're the head, you're the leader, but may we look and see what Scripture says. And in the end, if he can say, this is what the Scriptures teach, then you follow. Again, unless there's some really strange, uh, strange viewpoint, such as I've just mentioned a few moments ago. Both of you are to be under the authority of the Word of God. And wives submit to your husbands does mean that you should encourage your husband in his headship. Now, I want to speak with you seriously about this. The way the Lord has worked things, wired things, ordained things, established things, is that let me tell you, no, no man, no man worth his salt, if I can put it that way, wants to be under the leadership of a woman in the home. God hasn't ordained that it be that way. It's just not right. And so your calling is to be a helper to your husband in this leadership, to encourage him in this leadership, uh, to say to him, I want your leadership, and to say it not only with words, but by your attitude and by your demeanor. When a husband says to you, where do you want to go out to eat? and it really matters to you, you should say, well, here's where I want to go. Take him seriously. He wants to know where you want to go. If he says, where do you want to go out to eat? And you say, well, it doesn't matter, but it really does. And so he says, oh, we're going to so-and-so. Don't get angry with him. Now, that's a simple illustration, but you get the point. You're not encouraging your husband in his leadership. You're not taking seriously his leadership in that instance. Nancy Chastain used to use with ladies, and I'm sure she probably still does with young ladies, the illustration. Nancy, if you don't know, was a member of this congregation in years gone by. 
Nancy used to use the illustration of ballroom dancing. Now you have two people, a man and a woman, and there's a ballroom dance. And maybe a Presbyterian minister shouldn't use dancing as an illustration, but uh, just take it for what it's worth. Uh, there they are, and you see there's this beautiful, beautiful uh, calligraphy that's going on, but there can only be one leader. It won't be beautiful if there are two leaders. It won't be beautiful if they're stepping on one another's feet, tripping over one another, and rolling on the floor. Nothing pretty about that. But that's exactly what happens in marriage when the woman attempts to lead. When God says, that's not the way it's to be. In this ballroom dance of marriage... It will be a beautiful thing. You'll dance both beautifully together when you do what the scriptures say and let the man lead. So, don't attempt to rule over your husband, Christian lady. And this this command of Christ to you does mean that a young woman's training is important and how she learns, first of all, to submit to Christ, and how she learns to submit to her godly father or whatever authority the Lord has put in her life. You don't expect a woman to learn how to follow her husband, help her husband as a leader, if she's constantly rebellious against the Lord, rebellious against her teacher, rebellious against her mother, and especially against the godly father or male leadership in the church. Uh, She will not be what God calls her to be in marriage. God can change that. He can save by grace. He can change the heart. But you are training your daughters up in such a way that in their submission to the Lord, eventually they will be the kinds of wives God intends them to be. Do you understand that? Mothers, you have the chief obligation here to grow up strong women in the Lord Strong in character, strong in doctrine, strong in life. I'm not talking about mousy women. Strong women that know how in the home to follow the leadership and encourage the leadership of their godly husbands. Godly but faulty, let me say. Because there is not one godly husband that is not a faulty man. Not one godly husband that doesn't make mistakes. Not one godly husband that doesn't fail. And you need to be gracious when that happens as well and not hold within your heart those things. Well, turn to 1 Corinthians. Turn to the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians. And remember what the apostle says. I said 11, I meant 13. 1 Corinthians 13. And see what the apostle says about what love is. Remember he defines love in this way in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and following. Here is love. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth Love bears all things, believes all things, love hopes all things, endures all things, love never ends. Now that's characteristic of what godly love is like that should be manifested in the home by a wife to a husband and a husband to a wife. Love keeps no record of wrongs. J. Adams tells the story of a woman that came with her husband to see him. I remember reading this years ago. And he said, what's the problem? 
And uh, the wife whipped out her long, you know these long legal pads, the really long ones? Long legal pad. And there was a, 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 a double column that she had made with a record of all the wrongs that this man had done. The whole pad, both sides, all the record of the wrongs this man had done through the years. And he had to say, yep, I've done them all. But the problem, essentially, in the home was not that he failed, but that love keeps no record of wrongs. And she was keeping a record of wrongs. Don't fall into that trap. Now, the third basic instruction of Paul the Apostle, and actually where he spends more ink, is husbands love your wives. Husbands love your wives. Husbands, you are to love your wife as her head. Her head, verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, we should not have the picture of a head and a torso. That's not the meaning here. Head means sovereign. Head means leader. The word kephale means ruler or authority over. Christ is the sovereign, the head, the leader, the authority over his church. And so the husband is the sovereign, the ruler, the authority over his wife under the lordship of Christ always. And it's important for us husbands to understand that our wives stand under our authority. Under your loving leadership, loving leadership, husband. And so we are called to lead our wives after the pattern of Christ's leadership of his bride, the church. So you are to love your wives as heads, but also you are to love your wife after the pattern of Christ's sacrifice. Verse 25 Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. What, to what does he point? You are to love your wife after the pattern of Christ's sacrifice. This is the atonement. This is the cross through which he has redeemed and saved his people. And through the word that is proclaimed, he washes his people and he will take his people all the way to heaven's gates and into glory. The church is the bride of Christ. Those justified will be glorified. This Christ does for his precious bride purchased with his own blood. Now, husbands, you and I cannot redeem our wives. We cannot save our wives. We cannot wash her with the the water or with the blood. We cannot do that. You cannot redeem her, but you can sacrificially love her. And your goal for her should be heavenly glory. Your goal for your wife is that as mutual partners of the grace of life, Your wife will be in heaven glorifying the Lamb. Your goal for your wife 
should be by your love to show the love of Christ to her in such a way that your demeanor demonstrates something of the love of Jesus for his church. That's a remarkable and wonderful calling that husbands have. So husbands, love your wives as head after the pattern of Christ's sacrifice, but also as your own body. Look again at verses 28 through 30. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You are to love your wife as your own body, because you are one flesh with her. Because Christ nourishes his body, the church, you should nourish your body, your wife. Because Christ delights in his church, you should delight in your wife. Because Christ cherishes his body, the church, you should cherish your wife. Because this love was intended from the beginning, you should love your wife as your own body. For in verse 31, the apostle cites Genesis 2.24, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife and the two will become one flesh. Now, this has, this has more to say to us than sexual union. But it does not have less to say to us than sexual union. The one flesh relationship is there even when, because of illness, for example, the sexual union is not possible. But it includes the sexual union between a husband and his wife. And here I want to say something to the young people who are here. Young people, children, young people, I really want to see your faces. Look at me. <laughs> okay? I don't care how young you are. I don't, I don't even care if you don't understand what I'm saying right now. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it's the atmosphere in which you're growing. It's covenantal. I want you to understand that your culture is teaching you to throw away your sexual purity. But God is teaching you to keep and maintain your sexual purity. I don't care if it sounds old-fashioned. God knows what he's talking about. He made it. He designed sex. He made it. He knows what, whereof he speaks. He's the designer. He made the union between husband and wife and only within that union is the sexual relationship permitted and blessed as something that is good. Guard your sexual purity. And if there is a young person here and you have, you have not been obedient to that command, then the promise is if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Believe, repent, confess, ask the Lord to cleanse you, and then be obedient from this day forward. This is God's call to you. So, husbands, love your wives as your own body, because this love was intended from the beginning, which included the sexual union, and because your union with your wife, Paul says, points to the greatest of mysteries. Verse 32. This mystery 
is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So this, this, great, this great thing that God has designed that is called marriage actually points to something greater. It points, the Christian home, the Christian marriage points to this relationship that Christ the Redeemer has with his church. We then, who are in the estate of marriage, have the privilege of representing to the world the love, the salvation, the redemption of Christ and the loving, reverent response of the church to the Lord Jesus Christ, the mysterious union between Christ and his people, what we sometimes call the covenant of grace, a people given to the Son to love and redeem, the salvation of God's elect, all of that and more is pictured in marriage. Now, all that we've seen here under this command, husband, husbands love your wives, all of this demolishes the egalitarian viewpoint. You know what I'm talking about. The egalitarianism says men and women in terms of roles are equal in the home, equal in the church, in terms of roles. Now, in terms of ability, there may be, there may be greater gifts and so forth between men and women. There may be a variety of strengths and weaknesses, but I'm talking about roles here. So this demolishes the egalitarian viewpoint. Paul teaches, God teaches through Paul, by divine inspiration, that there are roles instituted by God. So all of this demolishes that viewpoint, and that's very, very prevalent in the church right now. I do not believe it's based on sound exegesis of Scripture. I believe it is an attempt to appease our culture and to bring the Bible into conformity with what our culture wants from us. It's another one of those points where the offense of the gospel is, uh, is being softened. All right? But the other, the other viewpoint, the authoritarian viewpoint, is also demolished by this command to husbands that they love their wives. You know what I mean by the authoritarian viewpoint, I hope. Um, the husband whose attitude is, you're here to serve me and I will be strict and overbearing and careless of your feelings. Uh, I've seen that a lot. I've seen it in churches. I've seen it encouraged in churches. Uh, the Bible doesn't teach anything like that. The Bible never teaches a man to treat any woman, much less his wife, as a doormat or to, or to treat a woman with anything less than um, the respect that she ought to have as a creature created in God's image, and especially as one who is redeemed by the blood of Christ, and especially if she is your wife. So egalitarianism, equal roles, no. Authoritarian viewpoint, I don't care about your feelings, you're here to serve me, I'm going to treat you like a doormat, nothing in the Bible like that. Rather than the egalitarian viewpoint and the authoritarian viewpoint, it teaches what today is generally called the complementarian viewpoint. I prefer to say the authoritative viewpoint. The husband is the head. He does rule, but he rules in view of Christ's love, Christ's atonement, and Christ's nurture. And if you love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, it will be a very rare instance in which a godly woman will buck at following your loving, nurturing, 
leadership. There may be rare occasions in which the man simply has to make the decision. You're trying to determine where the child should go to school. You have a difference of opinion. You've tried to work it out. You've perhaps even sat with counsel. In the end, you have a difference of opinion. The husband makes the decision. The wife submits. So Paul's summary, you can make this Roman numeral two if you want. Paul's summary is found in verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So the summary is simple. The husband must love his wife. Grammatically, by the way, that is an imperative. It is a command. And it is essential that it be a command due to the authority given to the husband. Christ is saying, I'm telling you, it's a command that I'm giving you, love your wives. If you, if you don't do that, you're going to abuse your authority. And so the husband must love his wife. It's, it's an imperative in the Greek text. And the other summary, the wife must reverence her husband. And again, verse 33 and verse 21 should be related because the word respect, I think, is a bit weak in verse 33. By the way... <clears throat> Did you notice in this text that the husband is commanded to love his wife and there's no command for the wife to love her husband? Have you ever noticed that? Now, that's not because you're off the hook and you shouldn't love your husband. But I would ask you to turn to Titus chapter 2. You see, the husband is given this role of loving his wife, and it is a command because he's given this authority. But in Titus chapter 2, we find this interesting verse. In verse 4, now let's read verse 3. Titus 2, 3. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine, They are to teach what is good. And so, these older women, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. I think the implication here is, husbands, you have a command right from the start, but at the same time, We learn to love, and women will learn to love their husbands in the process of being obedient and submissive to their loving leadership. And the older women, more mature women of our congregation should be looking for opportunities to speak to the young women of our church. Let me give you an example. The way young women dress today, all right? You know, it's very, very difficult for for the young men. And it's very difficult for the older men of the church to actually address a young woman. But you older women, hey, look, take some of these young ladies to lunch. Spend some time with them. Develop a relationship with them. Teach them about these things. Teach them about how they are to dress and what their manners should be like around young men. Teach them these things so that eventually they will be the wives that God wants them to be. And 
Another thing you more mature women can do is teach the young women how to love their husbands and how to be godly mothers. That's what Titus 2 is saying to you older women. Now, the third point is this, the gospel and marriage. Now, everything that the Apostle Paul has said in this chapter, I'm sure you've noticed, is the gospel is the emphasis throughout on how the husband and wife are to relate. Now, let me give you some thoughts and implications. First, behind what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5 is the truth of covenant love, covenant love. Today, I'm hearing a phrase that I used not to hear years ago, not often. I hear it a lot now, and it's the phrase, fall out of love. Well, pastor, I just have fallen out of love. I just don't love this person anymore to whom I committed myself in marriage. You know what that implies? It implies that the commitment is based on your feelings. Our commitment to one another in the home, in marriage, is not based on feelings. It's based on the gospel. It's based on eternal realities, eternal verities, eternal truths. Upon this this covenant God who in the Old Testament sought his wife Israel, this covenant God in which this finds fulfillment in the bride that he purchases to himself as revealed in the Old Testament. The one who says, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so the Lord rejoices over you, O Israel. The same God who says in the book of Hosea, I will betroth you to me forever. This is covenant love. And that's why, by the way, another reason that holding to the, to the notion that the covenant is unconditional in its nature and not conditional is very important. Federal vision folk hold to a conditional covenant. That's another story for another time. The Bible teaches that the covenant of grace is unconditional. Covenant love says, because of the cross, I am with you. Covenant love says, it is grace that I'm married to you even when things may not go well. Covenant love says, Christ does not forsake me, I will not forsake you. Covenant love says, if I may use the words of Barbara Ailes, one of our counselors, it means that I learn to love more and need less. Love more, need less. To give of myself to my spouse, not to expect from my spouse. That's covenant love. That's covenant faithfulness. That's what you young people need when you marry. And where do you get that? You get that from a commitment to the gospel, an understanding of who Christ is and what he has done. Christ doesn't say to you, I'm committed to you until I get tired of you. I'm committed to you until you disobey me. I'm committed to you until you mess up. Christ says, I've come to redeem and save you. I am committed to you. And especially men need that sort of commitment to their wives and to their homes. I'm committed to you. The second thing we say about the gospel in marriage is just to ask the question, how do we address marriage problems? Now again, I'm talking about a Christian husband, a Christian wife. That's what Paul's dealing with here. How do you address marriage problems? Well, I'll tell you how. how. The gospel. You say, Pastor, I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) You know, how do you deal with marriage problems? The gospel. All right, now, Pastor, really tell me how do you deal with marriage problems. All right, I will. The gospel. 
The gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, nothing but the gospel, nothing else to offer, nothing else is sufficient but the truth that Christ died for sinners and rose from the dead. That's at the core of everything. If you're going to work with boxes, all right, the gospel over here, marriage over here, you'll never see it. If you understand the gospel is about everything in life, then you'll begin to understand what I'm talking about. So how does that work? What is the gospel method of change? Well, let me give you an example of the gospel method of change. This comes from um, a blog, and I'm not a blog reader, except my son's, I read his, um, but a blog from Kevin DeYoung. He's a pretty wise young man, I think. And it was given to me by Pastor McDonald maybe several months ago. Now, the example here is not marriage, it's prayer. It's applicable, and I want you to see it. Now, DeYoung says, consider two, two different exhortations to prayer. The first is from William Law, whose dates are 1686 to 1781, and his famous book, A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life. Now, here is what William Law says about prayer. All right, you're commanded to pray, right? We all agree with that? You're commanded to pray? Well, here's what William Law says. I take it for granted that every Christian that is in health is up early in the morning, For it is much more reasonable to suppose a person up early because he is a Christian than because he is a laborer or a tradesman or a servant or has business that wants him. Let this, therefore, teach us to conceive how odious we must appear in the sight of heaven if we are in bed shut up in sleep and darkness when we should be praising God and are such slaves to drowsiness as to neglect our devotions for it. For if he is to be blamed as a slothful drone that rather chooses the lazy indulgence of sleep than to perform his proper share of worldly business, how much more is he to be reproached that would rather lie folded up in bed than be raised up in his heart to God in acts of prayer and adoration. Sleep is such a dull, stupid state of existence that even amongst mere animals we despise them most which are most drowsy. He, therefore, that chooses to enlarge the slothful indulgence of sleep rather than be early at his devotions to God, uh, chooses the dullest refreshment of the body before the highest, noblest employment of the soul. He chooses that state which is a reproach to mere animals rather than the exercise which is the glory of angels. Now, does that make you feel like praying? William Law says, get up out of bed, you lazy thing. That's how you pray, just buck up and do it. All right. Now, there's another example. That's one way to entice the believer to pray. Here's another. And this comes from the Puritan Thomas Goodwin, 1600-1680. So about the same time frame. And here's what Thomas Goodwin says. Mutual communion is the soul of all true friendship. And a familiar converse with a friend hath the greatest sweetness in it. So besides the common tribute of daily worship you owe to God, take occasion to come into his presence on purpose to have communion with him. This is truly friendly, for friendship is most maintained and kept up by visits, and these, the more free and less occasioned by urgent business or solemnity, the more friendly they are. We used to check our friends with this upbraiding. You still always come when you have some business, but when will you come to see me? When thou comest into the presence, be telling him still how well thou lovest him. Labor to abound in expressions of that kind, 
that which there is nothing more taking with the heart of any friend. You see? Now, DeYoung puts it this way. Which approach will serve you better over the long haul? I think we'd all opt for the second, communing with God, communing with a friend, coming because of love. The problem with the first is twofold. One, law, no pun intended, the man's name is law. Law insists with all his might on something that cannot be proven from Scripture, that is that we must get up early to pray. Two, he does not connect the biblical command to pray to the other biblical realities that would make us eager to pray. William Law makes me deathly afraid of the snooze bar. (laughs) Right? Thomas Goodwin makes me excited about prayer. Who wouldn't want the happiness of drawing near to God? Who doesn't delight to tell secrets and converse with a friend? Prayer will always be hard and will always take discipline, but when I see it as a means to communion with God, it feels more, more like, like a, a get-to than a have-to. I still need to hear the imperatives about prayer, that is, the commands about prayer. I still need to hear that and even feel convicted when I disobey those commands, but the indicatives of the gospel make me happy to hear the commands and eager to obey. Now, you apply that to marriage. You have a command here, husbands love your wives. And you can say, man, I'm just, you know, it's like that lazy bones, get out of bed. I guess I'll do it. For the long haul, it won't work. It just won't work. But if you say, Christ loved me, and I love him, and he died for me, and therefore I want to do what my friend and Savior has called me to, Or for a wife who struggles with obedience to her husband, his leading in life, my, my, I just, I guess I'll do it. That's what the Bible says. Or, yes, this is what the Bible says, but you know, the reason for it really is because I love Jesus and because he loves me. And that's going to make all of the difference in the way you view the commands of the Bible. Put the commands in gospel context. And that's what I mean, the answer to marriage problems The answer is the gospel. So apply it there. Uh, The more I see that my guilt is removed, the, the more I change inwardly. And you will crucify your sin in your marriage only when you know in your conscience that the sin of your soul is pardoned and you walk in communion with God. Now this is the gospel method of change. This and this only. But in order to change by the gospel, you must know Christ. And if you're sitting here tonight and you do not know Christ, you need Jesus. Let me ask, are you born again? Are you converted to God? Do you know that you must be born again? Have you seen yourself as a sinner and have you come to Christ for forgiveness? That's where it all begins and we call you to Jesus. Jesus, the only Savior and Redeemer of sinners. Now take this truth way down deep in your heart. Apply it wherever it is applicable in homes and marriages, but also in friendships and living for Jesus in whatever walk of life God has called you to. Let's stand and sing 99, my song forever shall record. 99, 99. <clears throat>